Section two of National Geographic Magazine, Volume one, number two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by M. J. Frank. Africa: Its Past and Future, Part Two, by Gardner Green Hubbard, eighteen twenty-two to eighteen ninety-seven. Appropriation of Africa by Europe. The English, French, Germans, and Belgians have within a few years planted colonies in Africa. They believe it is more for their interest to colonize Africa than to permit their surplus population to emigrate to America. These countries realize the necessity of creating new markets if they are to continue to advance. In Africa, the colonies must depend upon the home country, and open new fields for manufactures and commerce. They know that in equatorial Africa there are more than one hundred million people wanting everything, even clothes. The whole coast of Africa on the Mediterranean Sea, the Atlantic and Indian Oceans, from the Red Sea to the Isthmus of Suez, is claimed by European nations with the exception of two or three small inhospitable and barren strips of coast, England occupies Egypt and will hold it for an indefinite period. France has its colonies in Tripoli, Algiers, and Morocco, and on the Atlantic coast its factories in Senegambia. It seeks a route from Algiers across the desert to Lake Chad, and from Senegambia up the Senegal by steamer, thence across the country by rail to the head of navigation on the Niger, and down that river to Timbuktu. England occupies Sierra Leone, the Gold and Slave Coasts, the Delta and Valley of the Niger, and its branch the Banu. It has factories on these rivers, and small steamers plying on them, and seeks Timbuktu by the river Niger, it controls almost the entire region where the palm oil is produced. Timbuktu, long before Africa was known to Europe, was the center of a large trade in European and Asiatic goods. Caravans crossed the desert of Sahara from Timbuktu north to the Mediterranean and east to Gondokoro, carrying out slaves, gold, and ivory, and bringing back European and Asiatic goods. Sandwiched between the English possessions, Liberia struggles for existence, its inhabitants fast degenerating into barbarism. Joining the English possessions on the Gold Coast, two degrees north of the equator, are the German possessions of Cameroon, with high mountains and invigorating breezes. But the land at the foot is no more favorable to the European than the Guinea coast. One or two hundred miles in the interior of this part of the continent, the land rapidly rises to the tableland of equatorial Africa, rich and fertile, resembling the valley of the Congo, possibly habitable by Europeans. Next, the French occupy the Ogoe, its branches, and the coast to the Congo, and claim the country inland to the possessions of the Congo Free State. Under Monsieur Brassa, 
they have thoroughly explored the country to the river congo and have established factories at franceville and other places the congo free state comes next it holds on the coast only the mouth of the river its main possessions lying in the interior belgium is the only country that has planted colonies inland like all the interior of equatorial africa the valley of the congo is well watered and has continuous rains the land is rich and fertile but is practically inaccessible and before any extensive commerce can be carried on must be connected by railroad with the ocean the compagnie du congo has just completed a survey for a railroad on the south side of the congo from matadi opposite vivi to stanley pool it did not encounter any unusual difficulties and has submitted the plans and projects to the king of belgium for his approval south of the congo free state are the portuguese possessions of angola benguela and mosamides portugal the first country to circumnavigate africa and the first to colonize it has for several centuries had factories and carried on a large trade with africa exchanging clothes and blankets for slaves gold and ivory it claimed the valley of the congo but the claim has been reduced and is now bounded for a considerable distance on the north by a line running due east and west on the sixth parallel of south latitude they have good harbors at st paul de loango benguela and mosamides on the atlantic coast and the best harbor of africa at delagoa bay on the indian ocean the territory claimed will i believe prove to be the most valuable in africa it is well watered by numerous tributaries of the congo and by the zambezi and its branches it is higher than the congo valley and is therefore more healthy several portuguese english and german travelers have crossed and recrossed this part of the continent and the portuguese have some small settlements on the coast and in the interior the portuguese of the present generation have not the enterprise and trading spirit of their forefathers and are doing very little for the settlement of the country south of the portuguese possessions england claims from the portuguese possessions on the atlantic to their possessions on the pacific including namaqua land cape colony the Transvaal, and Zululand. Namaqua and Damaya land, formerly claimed by the Germans, are now put down on some of the maps as belonging to England. The only harbor on the coast is held by the English, and from the character of the country, we are not surprised that the Germans have abandoned it, for we are told that the coast is sandy and waterless, deficient in good harbors, devoid of permanent rivers, washed by never-ceasing surf, bristling with reefs, and overhung by a perpetual haze. North of Zululand, the Portuguese claim the coast to Zanzibar. Over Zanzibar, Germany has lately assumed the protectorate under a treaty with the sultan of the country, claiming the land from the ocean to the Great Lakes. Then England again, a little to the north and far to the west of Zanzibar, the rival of Germany in its claims. The English have factories west of Zanzibar, and a regular route up the Zambezi and Shire rivers, with a single portage to Lake Nyasa, and a road to Lake Tanganyika. 
they have steamers on each of the lakes and several missionary and trading stations the latest news from this part of africa says the route to the lakes has been closed and the missionaries and merchants murdered north of the english possessions the coast to the red sea is barren and inhospitable it has little rain and no harbors and is so worthless that it has not been claimed by any european nation north of this region is abyssinia on the indian ocean and red sea a mountainous country with deep valleys rich and fertile but very unhealthy three or four thousand feet above the level of the sea is a healthier country inhabited by a race of rugged mountaineers whom it has been impossible to dispossess of their lands north of abyssinia on the red sea italy has a small colony at massawa and england a camp at suakin the only parts of the coast not claimed by europeans are inhospitable without population or cultivation of any kind the belgians have spent many millions in the exploration of the congo and its tributaries they have eighteen small steamers making trips from leopoldville up the river to stanley falls and up its branches supplying the main stations in the basin of the congo the congo free state unlike all other african colonies is free to all merchants of any nation can establish factories carry on trade and enjoy the same privileges and equal facilities with the belgians the valley of the congo and the plateau of the great lakes have a similar climate and soil but the congo is easier of access provisions are cheaper more readily obtained and the natives are less warlike the congo free state will therefore be more rapidly settled than any other part of africa excepting cape colony the trade with these countries is carried on by european companies under royal charter with quasi-sovereign powers for ruling the country and governing the natives as well as for trading with them england germany and portugal subsidize steamship companies which make regular trips along the western coast stopping at the different stations from this statement it will be seen that england occupies the healthiest portion of africa cape colony the most fertile valleys the nile and the niger the richest gold fields gold coast and transvaal that portugal comes next claiming the most desirable portion of equatorial africa north of cape colony and south of the congo but that it is unable to colonize this country which will inevitably fall under the control of england that the french claim algiers and senegambia and are contending with england for the trade of timbuktu and the upper valley of the niger that germany after vain attempts to penetrate the interior from cameroon and angra pequena has planted her flag at zanzibar and has determined to contest with england the lake region and the great plateaus of central africa while italy imitating the other states tries in vain to obtain a footing on the red sea worthless if obtained population the population of africa is roughly estimated at two hundred million about eighteen to a square mile as against eighty-eight in europe 
it is supposed that africa was originally inhabited by the hottentots or bushmen who are now found only in southwestern africa and by the pygmies or dwarfs scattered about central africa who some say belong to the same group this group is noted for its dwarfed stature generally under five feet but whether their size is natural or due to privation and scanty food is not certainly known the hottentot language is distinct from any other known form of speech the bantu occupy the greater part of africa south of the equator they probably formerly inhabited northeastern africa but were driven from their homes by the hamites the bantu resemble the negro in their general character color and physique but their language shows essential differences there are countless tribes of bantu each tribe having its own language yet there was originally a primeval bantu mother tongue from which all the dialects of this immense region are undoubtedly derived the idioms of this family are generally known as the alliteral class of languages north of the bantu are the negroes proper occupying the greater part of africa between five degrees and fifteen degrees north latitude the negro tribes are multitudinous and though alike in their main physical features are diverse in their speech north of the negro are the nuba fula group apparently indigenous to africa but without anything in common with the other indigenous groups their name pulo or fula means yellow and their color serves to distinguish them from the negro the hottentot bantu negro and fula though distinct have each of them the agglutinative forms of speech the hamites are found along the valley of the nile in abyssinia and portions of the sudan the shemitic tribes occupy the larger part of the sudan bounded on the east by the Nile and on the north by the Mediterranean and North Atlantic. About one-half of the population are Negroes proper, one-fourth Bantu, one-fourth Shemites and Hamites, a few Nuba Fulas, and Hottentots. The Negroes and Bantu are pagans, the Shemites and Hamites Mohammedans. There are almost innumerable tribes speaking different languages or different dialects. Over six hundred tribes and languages have been classified by Shiloh, yet each is generally unintelligible to the other. Practically speaking, there are but two great divisions, the Negroes and Bantu occupying equatorial and southern Africa, and the Hamites and Shemites northern Africa but there is no clear-cut line even between the Mohammedan and Negro. For many hundred years the Negroes have been taken as slaves and carried into the north of Africa and have furnished the harems with wives and the families with servants. The servants are often adopted into the families so that the Negro blood now largely predominates even among the Shemites and Hamites. A broader and more practical distinction than that of language or blood is made by the religion of the African. The Mohammedan religion was probably brought from Arabia by the Shemites. They conquered the country along the coast and exterminated or pushed to the south the former inhabitants. 
then more slowly but steadily mohammedanism forced its way south by the sword or by proselyting within the last thirty years it has reassumed its proselyting character and is now more rapidly extending than at any previous time its missionaries are of a race nearly allied to the negro they live among them adopting their customs and often intermarrying with them they teach of one god whom all must worship and obey and of a future life whose rewards the negro can comprehend they forbid the sacrifice of human victims to appease the wrath of an offended deity they forbid drunkenness they give freedom to the slave who becomes a Moslem, and thus elevate and civilize those among whom they dwell. The Christian missionary is of a race too far above him. He is a white man, his lord and master. He teaches things his mind cannot reach, of a future of which he can form no conception. He brings a faith too spiritual. He labors with earnestness and devotion, even to the laying down of his life. Yet the fact remains that Christianity has produced but little impression in civilizing and elevating the people, while the influence of Mohammedanism is spreading on every side. In passing from the equator south, the tribes become more degraded. Sir Henry Maine enunciated the theory of the evolution of civilization from the lowest state of the savage. In Africa he could have found all stages of civilization. In the lowest scale, man and his mate, living entirely on the fruits of the earth, in a nude condition, his only house pieces of bark hung from the trees to protect him from the prevailing wind. The vulture, his guide to where, the previous night, the lion had fallen on his prey, leaving to him the great marrow-bones of the elephant or the giraffe his only arms a stick belonging to no tribe with no connection with his fellow-men his hand against every man the family relation scarcely recognized it is the land of the gorilla and there seems to be little difference between the man and the ape and both are hunted and shot by the boers in ascending the scale the family and tribal relation appears a house built of cane and grass or the bark of the tree a few flocks skill in setting traps for game the weapon a round stone bored through and a pointed stick fastened in the hole then come tribes of a low order of civilization that cultivate a little ground having a despotic king who has wives without limit numbering in some cases it is said three thousand wives and slaves slaughtered at his death to keep him company and serve him in another life with them cannibalism is common then come tribes of a higher civilization where the power of the chief is limited where iron copper and gold are manufactured and trade is carried on with foreigners where firearms have been substituted for the bow and spear Next, the Mohammedan, and last of all, on the shores of the Mediterranean, the civilization of the French and English. It is a curious fact that many tribes that had made considerable advance in manufacturing iron and copper have for some time ceased manufacturing. That others have retrograded 
and have lost some of the arts they formerly possessed. This decline apparently took place after the Mohammedans had conquered North Africa, and sent their traders among the Negro tribes, who sold the few articles the Negro needed cheaper than they could manufacture them, and therefore compelled them to give up their own manufactures. Such was the effect of free trade on interior Africa. The Mohammedans also manufacture less than formerly, depending more and more upon European manufactures. The enterprise of the white race defies native competition, and stifles attempts at native manufactures. There is, therefore, among the natives a great falling off in the progress of outward culture, and the last traces of home industries are rapidly disappearing. Slave Trade one of the departments of this society is the geography of life. At the head of all life stands man. It is therefore within our province to investigate those questions which more intimately concern and influence his welfare. Slavery and the slave trade have, within the last two hundred years, affected African life more than all other influences combined and this trade, with all its sinister effects, instead of diminishing, is ever increasing. It has had a marked effect not only on the personal and tribal characters of the inhabitants, but on their social organization, and on the whole industrial and economic life of the country. It has not only utterly destroyed many tribes, but it has made the condition of the other tribes one of restless anarchy and insecurity. It has been the great curse of Africa, and for its existence the nations of Europe have been, and are, largely responsible. The temper and disposition of the Negro make him a most useful slave. He can endure continuous hard labor, live on little, has a cheerful disposition, and rarely rises against his master. There are two kinds of slavery home, and foreign. The first has always prevailed in Africa. Prisoners taken in war are sacrificed, eaten, or made slaves. Slavery is also a punishment for certain offenses, while in some tribes men frequently sell themselves. These slaves are of the same race and civilization as their masters. They are usually well treated, regarded as members of the family, to whom a son or daughter may be given in marriage, the master often preferring to keep his daughter in the family to marrying her to a stranger. This slavery is a national institution of native growth. It is said one half of the inhabitants are slaves to the other half. The horrors of the slave trade are unknown in this kind of slavery. In the other case, the slave is torn from his home, carried to people, countries, and climates with which he is unfamiliar, and to scenes and civilization which are uncongenial, where his master is of a different color and of another and higher civilization, where the master and slave have nothing in common. The Spaniards made slaves of the Indians of America, but they were incapable of work, unfitted for slavery, and rapidly faded away. In pity for the Indians, the Africans were brought to supply their places. Their ability to labor was proved, 
and they were soon in great demand. It is impossible to ascertain the number of slaves imported into America. The estimates vary from four million to five million. The larger number is probably an underestimate, but these figures do not represent the number shipped from Africa, for twelve and a half percent were lost on the passage, one-third more in the process of seasoning, so that out of one hundred shipped from Africa not more than fifty lived to be effective laborers. Livingstone, who studied the question of slavery most carefully, estimated that for every slave exported not less than five were slain or perished, and that in some cases only one in ten lived to reach America. If the lowest estimate is taken, then not less than twenty million Negroes were taken prisoners or slain to furnish slaves to America. No wonder that many parts of Africa were depopulated. Though the slave trade with America has been suppressed, thousands are annually stolen and sold as slaves in Persia, Arabia, Turkey, and Central and Northern Africa. Wherever Mohammedanism is the religion, there slavery exists, and to supply the demand the slave trade is carried on more extensively and more cruelly today than at any previous time. The great harvest field for slaves is in Central Africa between 10 degrees south and 10 degrees north latitude. From this region, caravans of slaves are sent to ports on the Indian Ocean and the Red Sea, and thence shipped to Indochina, the Persian Gulf, Arabia, Turkey in Asia, and even to Mesopotamia, wherever Mussulmans are found. The English at Suakim are a constant hindrance to this traffic, and therefore Osman Digna has so often within the past five years attacked Suakin, desiring to hold it as a port from which to ship slaves to Arabia. Other caravans are driven across the desert to Egypt, Morocco, and the Barbary states. Portuguese slave traders are found in Central Africa, and though contrary to law, deal in slaves, and own and work them in large numbers. Cameron says that Alvarez, a Portuguese trader, owned five hundred slaves, and that to obtain them ten villages, having each from one hundred to two hundred souls, were destroyed. And of those not taken, some perished in the flames, others of want, or were killed by wild beasts. Cameron says, I do not hesitate to affirm that the worst Arabs are angels of mercy in comparison to the Portuguese and their agents. If I had not seen it, I could not believe that there could exist men so brutal and cruel, and with such gaiety of heart. Livingstone says, I can consign most disagreeable recollections to oblivion, but the slavery scenes come back unbidden and make me start up at night horrified by their vividness. If the chief or pasha of a tribe is called upon for tribute by his superior, if he wishes to build a new palace, to furnish his harem, or fill an empty treasury, he sends his soldiers, armed with guns and ammunition, against a negro tribe armed with bows and spears, and captures slaves enough to supply his wants. The territory from which slaves are captured is continually extending, 
for as soon as the european traveller has opened a new route into the interior he is followed by the arab trader who settles down cultivates the ground buys ivory each pair of tusks worth about five hundred dollars at zanzibar or cairo invites others to come and when they have become acquainted with the country and gathered large quantities of ivory and porters are wanted to carry the tusks to the coast a quarrel is instigated with the negroes war declared captives taken men for porters women for the harem the villages are burned and the caravan of slaves and ivory takes its route to the coast where all are sold we are told on good authority that during the past twenty years more slaves have been sent out than formerly were exported in a century wisman tells us what he has seen in january eighteen eighty two we started from our camp two hundred souls in all following the road sixty feet wide to a region inhabited by the basange on the sankuru and lomami rivers the huts were about twenty feet square divided into two compartments the furniture consisting of cane and wooden stools floor ceiling and walls covered with grass mats between the huts were gardens where tobacco tomatoes pineapples and bananas were grown the fields in the rear down to the river were cultivated with sweet potatoes ground nuts sugar-cane manioc and millet goats and sheep and fowls in abundance homestead follows homestead in never-ending succession from half-past six in the morning we passed without a break through the street of the town until eleven when we left it it then still extended far away to the southeast the finest specimens in my collection such as open-work battle-axes inlaid with copper spears and neat utensils i found in this village four years had gone by when i once more found myself near this same village with joy we beheld the broad savannas where we expected to recruit our strength and provisions we encamped near the town and in the morning approached its palm groves the paths were no longer clean no laughter was heard no sign of welcome greeted us the silence of death breathes from the palm trees tall grass covers everything and a few charred poles are the only evidence that man once dwelt there bleached skulls by the roadside and the skeletons of human hands attached to the poles tell the story many women had been carried off all who resisted were killed the whole tribe had ceased to exist the slave dealer was sayal lieutenant of tipotip sir samuel baker was largely instrumental in the suppression of the slave trade and while the rule of the english and french in egypt was maintained slavery was greatly diminished but since the defeat and death of general gordon the slave trade has rapidly increased and is now carried on more actively than at any other time the only obstacles to this traffic are the presence of emin pasha at wadalai the english and american missionaries and english trading stations on lakes victoria nyanza and tanganyika the slave traders unite in efforts to destroy emin pasha and to expel the missionaries and all european travellers and traders 
except the Portuguese, and for this purpose excite the hostility of the Negro against the foreigner. In this they are aided by the Mahdi. The work of the Mahdi is largely a missionary enterprise. The dervishes who accompany his army are religious fanatics, and desire the overthrow of the Christians and Emin Pasha as earnestly as the slave-trader. Religious fanaticism is therefore united with the greed of the slave-trader to drive out the Christians from the lake region. Aroused by these reports and influenced by these views, Cardinal La Vigerie, for twenty years Bishop of Algiers and now Primate of Africa, last summer started a new crusade in Belgium and Germany against slavery and the slave trade. The Cardinal has organized societies and is raising a large fund to equip two armed steamships for Lake Tanganyika and Lake Nyasa, the headquarters of the slave trade, and offers, if necessary, to head the band himself. The Pope has engaged in the work, has contributed liberally to this fund, and sent three hundred Catholic missionaries to Central Africa. The slave trade is carried on with arms and ammunition furnished by European traders. Without these arms, the slave trade could not be successfully carried on, for the Negroes could defend themselves against slave traders armed like themselves. While the demand for slaves continues, the slave trade will exist, and will not cease until the factories of European nations are planted in the interior of Africa. End of section two. Recording by M. J. Frank, Portland, Oregon.